Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Good evening. Let me give you a couple of uh, specific uh, pieces of information before we jump right into our study. The first is, if you're interested in learning more about Wilkesboro Baptist Church and membership, we'll have a Next Steps class on Sunday afternoon, May 15th at 4.30. If you're interested in that, let me know tonight or register online, or you can register using the tear tab in a worship guide from Sunday. That's May 15th. And then on the back of the handout that you received when you came in is uh, an upcoming schedule for this particular series. And I want to draw your attention to just a couple of pieces of information based on that schedule. We're going to work our way through uh, really the the second week of June. So we're going to go through June 8th and look at the the attributes of God on those weeks. On the weeks after Awana ends, and Awana will finish up uh, its semester schedule the last Wednesday of May... We will provide a child care option those first two weeks of June and also a child care option on the last week of June. The last week of June, we'll come back in here for this, but it won't be a doctrine and devotion series. I'll have gone to the Southern Baptist Convention a couple of weeks prior to that, and uh, VBS starts right after I come back. So what I'll do on that 29th is come back in and share with you a report from the Southern Baptist Convention, what's going on, what are the details about that. For those of you that are transplanted Southern Baptist. By that, I mean you come to us from another denomination. Some of what I'll share will be quite interesting uh, in terms of our polity and how things happen in Southern Baptist life. For some of you that are lifelong Southern Baptist folks like me, it may not be all that surprising, but it may be some interesting content on that last uh, Wednesday night of June. You'll notice the 15th, uh, I'll be out of town that week, but because VBS is, uh, we haven't done an in-person VBS, like five-day VBS for about three years now, or two years at least, uh, because of COVID. So that'll be a VBS training night. There will not be a Bible study, an adult Bible study. And then, of course, the 22nd, everything will be focused around B- VBS, so there won't be an adult Bible study. And then what we're going to do is take the next six weeks off. So the month of July and the first couple of weeks of August, we will not meet in here. There will not be a child care option at the church. There won't be any Wednesday programming in terms of activity. And we'll come back in August, as you'll see on that schedule, the August the 17th, we'll start back in here. And Awana will start back in, uh, in the fellowship hall for the kids on that Wednesday night, the 17th. I just wanted you to be aware of some of the dates that were coming up. Uh, also, what this will do is kind of give you a heads up to what we're dealing with week by week in terms of our schedule. Any, does that make sense? If you have any questions, feel free to let me know. Our, our goal, I think, with, uh, with when this was a Wednesday night worship service that was recorded for Sunday, we did it every week. The, the challenge of doing that now is the content challenge of being ready every, every week to do two major things. But also, uh, that, that summer break will give me some time to get ahead, prepare it a little bit in advance. So I think what our anticipation would be would be 39 to 42 weeks a year we would be in, in here on Wednesday nights. So we, six weeks in the summer and probably three weeks around the Christmas holidays, we would not meet for this Wednesday event, this Bible study event. The rest of the time we'll meet. Uh, even with school's out, like we did with uh, spring break, and Josh came in and did a good job. I listened to his talk, by the way, his teaching time. So uh, I, I've got to have a conversation with him about a, a thing or two, but uh, he did a good job. And uh, you can tell him I said that. And, and I didn't tell him to say all the things he said I said to say. 
Nevertheless, uh, we're glad to have Josh here with us, uh, serving with us on our church staff. Okay, so um, I'm not going to apologize to you for this, but this is going to be a little bit of a heady one because we're making a transition between the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of God. And one of the reasons I wanted to do a little something different than just diving into a theological lesson is I wanted you to see that in our contemporary cultural setting, there is a, an intersection between the questions that are asked in philosophy and the answers that the Bible gives us about who God is. And so what we're going to do tonight is, is a transitional talk between the doctrine of revelation, which is the doctrine of scripture. We did about eight or nine weeks uh, into that in the spring and we're going to spend the next eight or nine weeks in the doctrine of God. I think by the second week of August or the, the 24th or whatever it is on the calendar, we'll have finished up the doctrine of God and be moving into the doctrine of humanity. I think we'll, we'll be that far along. If we're not, we'll do a few more weeks in the doctrine of God. But in this introduction, what we're going to do is the intersection between philosophy and theology. What is philosophy? Philosophy is the love of wisdom. That's the, the technical term. As far as for us in the West, in the, Ameri- in, in, in the Western culture, Western civilization, we think of the beginning of philosophy as happening in Greece. Ultimate reality is at the heart of what we make sense of in terms of, is there ultimately a God that is in control of all things? Or if you look at other observations, kind of other worldviews that would say there are a multitude of gods. Well, what is ultimate reality behind all of those deities? Hinduism asks questions about, questions about that. Buddhism asks questions about that. Eastern mythology or Eastern philosophies would pose ideas like pain is only in your brain. You heard that one? That's a question or a statement about what is real. So the ontological question is a question about reality. The third question is the axiological question, and that's a question of value. What has value in life? What is important? What matters? There are all sorts of things that in contemporary culture, we have around us that are argued about their value. Just in the contemporary division in politics in our own life, you have the value of life, or the value of choice. You have the value of uh, racial reconciliation or, or the value that, that you have to hold on, uh, have, give, give reparations to a, a group of people in our contemporary culture. Th- those values are argued all the time in terms of practical, the practical outliving of what we say is important to us. But that's a, in philosophy, it's the axiological question, what has value? What is important? What matters? And how can we determine what has value? Now, those three questions are kind of the foundational question to what's going on in philosophy. Why do things exist when there could be no existence? So why do we have existence? What is ultimate reality or what is real? And then the third question, what has value? These questions, while we may not intersect with them all the time, we do intersect with them more often than we'd like to think we do. And that gets us to the fourth question, which is the most important of the four, and where the connection between theology and philosophy comes into play. That's the epistemological question. The epistemological question. That's the question of knowledge. And the question is specifically, how do we 
No. So whenever a philosopher poses an answer to the question of existence, we exist because, and fill in the blank, or whenever a religion poses the answer, this is what reality is, and fill in the blank, or whenever you and I, as a Christian, would say, we value life over choice, we want there to be no abortions rather than access to abortions. That's a value. Translate that, switch the conversation around. If someone were to say we value choice over life or value choice, we say that that's reproductive freedom, then what, what matters is, in terms of a philosophical connection, how do you know that what value you claim is morally right? Where do we get the answer to that question? In other words, how can we ground our claims? our claims about existence, our claims about value, and our claims about reality. And there are really only a few ways that we can get at that answer, the answers to that question in terms of epistemology. How do we know? There are only about, I'm going to give you four here tonight. There might be a couple more, but really it breaks down into these four ways that we can know something to be true or something to be real. The first way These are epistemological categories. The first category is rationalism. If you remember from a few weeks ago, there may be some overlap here. Rationalism. Short answer to that blank is it's mathematics. Two plus two is four. So rationalism provides an answer to how do we know. Well, how do you know two plus two is four? Because two plus two is always going to be four. there's, There's no field in which there's no multiverse. If you're in the MCU universe, there's no multiverse. There's no reality in which two plus two is not going to be four. We get that, right? That, that's why when you as parents try to teach your kids new math or, or math that new systems of math, it's like, man, math shouldn't change. Maybe the systems that teach math, anyway, I'm not going to get into that that sphere, because when my boys come home with math, that's my wife's field of influence there. But in a broader sense, more than just the basic mathematics, rationalism as, as a mathematical approach is one answer to how do we know what is real. If you go all the way back even to Greek philosophy, you have the Greek philosopher Pythagoras, known for the Pythagorean theorem. How many of you remember that from your middle school? Is it middle school algebra? Is it algebra or geometry? It's geometry? Uh, I don't know. I just, I just know that Pythagoras developed the Pythagorean theory. Couldn't hope to tell you what it is. Did you also know that Pythagoras developed a philosophy cult around mathematics? Because Pythagoras was looking for ultimate reality. He was trying to ask and answer the greater philosophical slash religious questions of his day, and he was looking for ultimate reality through mathematics. Because, right, rational thought should be stable. The problem with rationalism as an answer to all the questions is that there are a lot of things that math can't tell us, okay? That should go without saying. Math can't tell you an equation for love, right? 
And math at its heart, or, or, or mathematics, even becomes irrational. Let me give you an example. So two plus two is always four, but if you take a graph, if you put on a graph, and on the graph you have the four quadrants, positive and negative quadrants, right? You, numbers go all the way to infinity. Shake your head if you're sort of with me. Numbers go all the way into infinity. You can count and count and count and never stop because numbers keep adding. But if you take a graph and you go all the way to infinity positively, then you should, in a negative sense, be able to go all the way to zero, but you can't go all the way to zero negatively. If you took a graph and you went you know, from negative one to negative zero on that quadrant of the graph and you went negative 0.5, negative 0.75, or whatever your half would be, when would you reach zero? You would never reach zero. So at some point, mathematics breaks down into an irrational place. In other words, you can't find ultimate reality in something that lands itself irrationally. And philosophers for the last two or 300 years have tried to find ultimate reality through rationalism or even through mathematics specifically, and it doesn't work. Let me give you a second answer to the epistemological question, how do we do? That would be empiricism, and that's the scientific method. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It essentially says that through observation and through experience and through uh, sound uh, kind of methodology, we can discover what ultimate reality is. Or we can discover what is ultimately true. Or we can discover why things are in existence. The problem with that, or th- there are many benefits to that, by the way. I mean, our scientific or our, our medical advances in technology come because of the scientific method. I'd be grateful for that. Gr- be grateful for empirical observations and all of the things that brings us. The problem, though, with empiricism being the answer to ultimate reality is science is always changing because science at its root is based on skepticism. It's based on the, rea- the, the, the factor of asking questions of theories and or laws that we're always trying to disprove. I mean, why do you have so many different viewpoints on physics? And Newtonian physics are totally at, I'm not a physicist, so I'm not talking about this with authority. I'm talking about this by way of illustration. But Newton's concepts about physics are no longer discussed in, in, science, in science classrooms. Why? Because a guy by the name of Albert Einstein came along and revised physics. And that's true of almost any theory within science. Science is designed, aimed at skepticism. So when theories change, such as theories, by the way, the whole thing about Marvel comics and multiverses, that's not a comic uh, concept. It was co-opted by comics, but it's been discussed by scientists and physicists for 60 or 70 or 80 years as why does this universe exist? Could there be multiple universes that exist? I'm not suggesting that there are. I don't think there is. There are multiple universes. I don't think there are multiverses. But those are scientific queries or scientific options. One of the basic problems with empiricism, though, as an answer to the philosophical questions is, why do I exist when there are things that don't exist, like dragons and 
unicorns? Why do we exist when those things don't? Is because once you start saying an answer to why things exist that you can't root in scientific observation, you move out of empirical data. In other words, when, when someone would say that evolution, for example, is the way that we came about into human existence or into existence in the world, that's no longer a scientific observation. Do you get that? That is a dogmatic claim because science has to be observable and reproducible in order to give you a fact or or in order to give you a specific scientific truth. Evolution is merely a theory that fits the supposed facts or the facts about the existence of the universe. Evolution is not science, it's science theory. Uh, Science fiction, if you want my opinion of it, but it's science theory. So empiricism falls short because there are things we can't observe. Rationalism falls short because eventually it moves into irrationalism and or it just can't answer all the questions we'd ask. So what happens when you get to a point, what do you do? What does a scientist do or what does a philosopher do when they get to a point where their system doesn't give them an answer to the questions they're asking? The questions of reality, the questions of axiology, the questions of... Uh, ontology. What do they do? Do you know what they do? Elaine, what are you saying? They just say this is the way it is. That's the third claim, dogmatism. Dogmatism. What happens when a scientist or a philosopher gets beyond what they can prove factually? You know what they do? They speak dogmatically or authoritatively. Anybody in here like Discovery Channel? I love the Discovery Channel. I love Discovery Channel. I love the History Channel. I love nature shows. I love history shows. It's fascinating whenever you watch anything about nature. 450 billion years ago, or whatever number that they give, depending on the different you know, voice that's behind the, the storyline. They say it as if it's absolute, factual. Why does that work? Well, because they're giving you a number that fits their particular theory, but they're making a dogmatic claim. Now, dogma is not necessarily bad. We have dogma in terms of our theological doctrine, but we get it from a different source. Dogma in this particular sense that I'm using it is, this is true and right because I say it's true and right. Uh, now, I don't, I don't have the authority to say that. None of us do in reality. And so what happens when scientists or philosophers or other religious systems for that matter, Islam is guilty of this, they say this is value, this is my axiology if we're using uh, philosophical language, this is my value, this is what is real, or this is what, is in exi- this is what actually exists. Whenever they make those claims and their particular system doesn't find warrant for those claims, that's dogmatism. It's, in other words, they're making a claim that they can't prove. Does that make sense? So here's the fourth way that we answer these questions. That would be revelation. God speaks to us. Revelation. So let's get back at these questions for, exa- for, exa- for a moment. 
The question of existence. The question of existence. In the doctrine of Revelation says, we exist because God created us. In other words, someone, God, who was here at the beginning, before anything else was, has testified to us in the pages of Scripture that there was a time when nothing was, or rather there was a time when only he was, nothing else was in existence, and God spoke the world into existence. The information that we have, the claims that we make, and the claims that we're going to make about the doctrine of God as it relates to the doctrine of creation, morality, values, or whatever those things, they're not claims that you and I make because we think we're better than other people. They're not claims that you and I make because we think we're more right than other people. We're more holy, we're more moral, or any, anything of that. We don't ground our claims in dogmatism, at least our own dogmatism. We ground our claims in what we've been talking about for the last nine weeks. If God is real, and if God spoke the Bible into existence, and if it's trustworthy, then what God says about these questions that we have, if God, God says it, then it's something that we can be assured is real and is right and is true. Does that make sense? So Revelation gives us answers to these questions. God speaks to us about existence. He speaks to us about reality. He speaks to us about value. He speaks to us about all of the questions that philosophy would answer. The challenge for us as Christians is not so much to dive into theology with a whole bunch of philosophical questions, but it's to recognize that God is going to give us answers that will help make sense of the world in which we live and make sense of the connections and the interplay between philosophy and theology. And as we look through theology, we're going to intersect over and over and over again. What's fascinating, though, about what God did when he introduced himself to us. If, if I were writing the Bible and I were writing the Bible in a way as to try to find sense of who, the God, who God is, I might defend my own existence or ask God to defend his existence. In other words, there are plenty of arguments throughout the years, philosophical arguments, the, the ontological argument for God's existence or the cosmological argument or the argument from design, the teleological argument. Those are great arguments. And maybe there will be a time when we can talk about one or several of those in, the, in these sessions. Great arguments for God's existence. They don't absolutely prove anything, but they help us know that we don't have to check our brains at the door as Christians. There are good reasons for believing there's a God who exists. But what's fascinating about God He never defends his existence in the pages of Scripture. God doesn't give us a philosophy textbook. He doesn't say to us from Genesis to Revelation, here's how you know I am real. He doesn't do that. God doesn't explain or defend himself. Rather, he he announces himself. He says, here's who I am. Think about Genesis 1. It's a fascinating, utterly astounding beginning to God's revelation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We'll talk about this in a little more detail when we get to the doctrine of creation. There are plenty of other creation narratives from other religious systems all throughout the world. And some of them are just absolutely ludicrous in some of the ways that the gods organized the creation of the, the physical space in which we live. They're ludicrous. The Bible begins 
in a rather matter-of-fact, utterly simplistic announcement in the beginning, God. He simply announces himself. Repeated in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, just a very straightforward, simplistic, clear, reality-affirmed statement. Now, now, that doesn't mean you have to believe it as that. I'm not, I, I do, and we do, right? But what, what, what's fascinating about God is when he introduces himself to us, he doesn't do so on the, from, the, from the questions that philosophy would answer or other religious systems would answer. He simply reveals himself as the God who is and the God who speaks and the God who wants to know us. He just announces who he is. That gets us to a, a kind of a, another point that I want us to make sure that we're, our frame of reference is correct as we move forward in the study of God. Why are we studying about who God is? Why are we spending time in the doctrine of God? Because there is no greater purpose in our lives than to know the God who is real and to know the God who exists. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. It's at the, at the top of your handout on the right side of the page. What is the chief end of man? What is our purpose in existence? The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy him or enjoy God forever. There is no greater experience that any of us can have in life than the experience of getting to know God. One of the glorious um, kind of interconnections in this whole philosophical framework, these questions that we've looked at from philosophy, there, there are a lot of uncertainties. There are a lot of things that philosophers throughout the years have finally gotten to the point and said, we don't know X or we don't know Y or we don't know this particular answer to this equation or this question. We're not sure. Same thing happens with science, which is why science continues to advance in technology because they're always looking deeper or looking further. And that's that God made us curious and God made us creative. But what's beautiful about what we get to do as followers of Jesus And as those who know God is we get to spend our entire spiritual lives getting to know the God who spoke everything into existence. One of the beautiful things about theology is that God doesn't explain or defend himself, but he does make himself knowable. So if you're an evolutionary naturalist and and you really hold to the fact that the world came about through evolutionary means, and you back it up with your evidence, and you back it up with your ideas and your, your arguments, fantastic. At some point, that system dissolves into hopelessness. There's nothing there beyond evolutionary naturalism. If you bought into that hook, line, and sinker, and holding that consistently, man, that's a very hopeless position. As a follower of Jesus, though, what I want to tell you is that theology and the study of God will answer some of these philosophical questions that we have. 
Now, they may not answer it to the extent that we're going to convince every unbeliever. But I tell you what they'll do. They will affirm what the Bible says and affirm what we believe. But they'll do so in a frame of reference that I think is beautiful. God doesn't just want us to know about him. And being able to answer questions that our brain wants to figure out, God wants us to know him personally. I mean, the God who who spoke all this into existence will allow you and me to bow our heads and close our eyes and talk to him in a conversation. We did that just now. He'll he'll listen to us as we sing praises. God is knowable. I've put a quote in there from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Classic. I would encourage, uh, commend that to any of you to read. Fascinating book. J.I. Packer puts it this way. We must say that knowing God involves first listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application of oneself. Second, noting God's nature and character as his word and his works reveal it. That's part of what we're doing on Wednesday nights as we look at the doctrine of God. We're going to look at his nature and his character. We're going to look at who God is. We're going to discover what the Bible, what God claims about himself through the pages of scripture. And that's going to let us know a whole lot, not only about God, but about knowing God and entering into a relationship with him. And third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown and thus approaching you and drawing you into this divine fellowship. I don't want you to lose sight of this. God can answer all the questions and the conundrums that we have. And he wants to answer a few. And I hope that over the course of our weeks in this study, some of your questions will be answered. But more than God wants to answer your questions, he wants you to meet him and know him and talk with him and be able to relate to him and know that he's with you wherever you go and whatever's going on in your life. Let me give you four takeaways as we finish up tonight. This is my personal opinion, takeaway number one. We should not be afraid of the intersection between philosophy and theology. While they ask and answer different questions, they are not in meaningful discord with regard to what we know and how we know it. Now, let me qualify that for just a second. Because if you go to an introductory philosophy class at uh, a, a higher, a higher a, a educational uh, university, a college or university, you're going to get far different answers to some of these philosophical questions than I've provided in the 25 minutes we've been talking already. I know that. There's a lot of disagreement. Here's what I mean by meaningful discord or a lack of meaningful discord. When it comes down to the base facts of the reality in which we live, that we exist as opposed to the fact that we don't exist, that the universe has a beginning, which nearly all physicists believe that the universe as we know it has a beginning, to the fact that philosophers can't figure out who a person is. Well, philosophers, politicians can't figure out who a person is what gender we have, a lot of things that they can't figure out. I don't know why they can't figure it out. Well, could, well I do know why. We, we talk about that in, in, in other weeks. They don't want to know. But they have all of these uncertainties and all of these questions. When you, get it, when you get it, what we experience though, what we see around us and what we know to be factually true, here's what I've discovered. There is not meaningful disagreement 
between what the Bible claims about the answers to these questions. And in fact, that God is creator. He spoke the world into existence. He made us in his image. I mean, why are we different than animals? If evolutionary naturalism is right, shouldn't some of us still be climbing in trees and eating bananas with our feet? I mean, why don't we still see those, those evidences of evolutionary transition? Well, we don't. Well, we shouldn't expect to see that. Why? Because there's not meaningful discord between what we see in the world in which we live and what God has said about the world in which we live. What, what, what that does for us is it gives us confidence that the answers we're going to discover in theology, who God is, and by extension, who we are as we look at the doctrine of humanity, it fits within the framework of the world that God created. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because God spoke the world into existence. He created it. He designed it. And so what he says about the world is true and it accords with our experience of reality. If you do a a real serious study on philosophical arguments and or worldview systems, you're going to find that a lot of other worldviews have some places where their worldview accords with reality but they're gonna have some places where their worldview and the answers that they give are in striking discord with the world in which we live. I mean, they're just, they're just, they just don't fit. You've got some worldviews that say there's no such thing as sin. Well, you try to explain all the wickedness that prevails in the world, all the things that are ungodly. And by the way, everybody has a value. I mean, the political left and the political right have a value. And I promise you those on the political left believe that it is a moral right that women have a choice for reproductive freedom. That's not just something they think is okay. That's something they think is good by their own definition of good. They have a moral value. They can't ground it like we can, but they have a moral value. And that's true in all these other systems. The problem is they don't accord with the reality in which we live. The beauty of biblical Christianity is that There's not a meaningful discord between the answers that God gives, the statements and the revelation God provides and the world in which we live. If we'll meet God and be in relationship with him. Let me give you the last three takeaways. To speak in philosophical terms, the God of the Bible is ultimate reality. We wanna know what is ultimately real. There's nothing more important than knowing God. In the beginning, God. He is the only one that has always been. So ultimate reality is the God of the Bible. If we want to have any hope of understanding any of these questions, existence, value, reality, how do we know? Then we need to know the one who is ultimate reality. We'll go through that from a different perspective Maybe a year from now, when we get into the doctrine of salvation and some of the different ways that salvation is explained and defined, uh, and there, there are questions about ultimate reality and how you get at salvation from that. But to use philosophical terms, the God of the Bible is ultimate reality. To speak in theological terms, the God of the Bible is knowable. What amazes me is a God so gloriously complex, at least in the sense of what he's created, right? I mean, algebraic equations, mathematic equations, physics, the expansiveness of the universe, the, uh, the absolute fascinating detail of the human person and DNA, 
the extensiveness of space. I mean, you go on and on, all the things that we could dive into and research and think about. God thought all that up from nothing, okay? He came from the creative glory of his own person. A God that great, a God that grand, a God that glorious, a God that sovereign, a God that in control wants to know you. That's pretty amazing. John 17, three, this is eternal life to know Jesus Christ and the one whom, or know God and the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. I was talking with uh, Dr. Mike and Dustin earlier today, Matthew 7. Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. God wants to know you. He does know you better than you'll ever know yourself. And he invites us to know him. That is astounding. So some of you sit here and think, man, this is way, this, this isn't what I signed up for showing up on a Wednesday night. I didn't, I didn't, wasn't interested in philosophical questions. Okay. That's perfectly fine. No big deal. Just go read your Bible tonight. God wants to know you. You don't have to have a degree in philosophy to know God. I only want you to know that the questions that have been asked for thousands of years by different people across all different spheres of existence and life have been answered by God already in the pages of scripture. And in the meantime, what God says matters is that you know him and he knows you. Fourth takeaway, our approach to knowing God by his revelation. And this is where we're gonna try to emphasize or what we're gonna emphasize over the next few weeks in the doctrine of God. Our approach to knowing God must include humility, God doesn't owe us anything. What we get from God is pure grace and invitation. And it is God initiating the conversation. We're like the ant to God being the human. That's a terrible analogy, but it, you know, God doesn't owe us anything. So our approach to him has to be one of humility. It's, it's why, just to get really practical for a moment as followers of Jesus, it's why pride and hubris has no place in the body of Christ. It's why selfishness and self-centeredness has no place in the body of Christ because quite simply, it's not about us. It's about him. And so our approach has to be one of humility. God is far greater than we'll ever imagine him to be. I mean, he is. If there's one thing I hope we get out of the doctrine of God in our time on Wednesday nights, I hope that you walk away thinking that God is far greater than you ever imagined that he could be. And the, the Bible tells us that. So our approach needs to be humility. Our approach must include faith. We won't know God apart from believing in the God, in God as he's revealed himself. Sure, God can answer questions and bring you into a rational understanding of himself. God is not irrational. His invitations to us are not irrational. His declarations in scripture, you don't have to check your brain at the door. You don't have to close your eyes and just hope that something is there. No, it's very rational. But we only enter into a relationship not not by the quality of our brains or the extensiveness of our intellects, by faith. I mean, God put knowing him on the bottom shelf. 
You get that? He put it on, the, on, on a level where the intellectually deficient, such as a child, in some ways, they can know God better than, than some of us who would claim to be intellectually sufficient. God made himself knowable by faith, not by any other category, not by, not by intellect, not by wealth, not by good deeds, but by faith. So our approach to knowing God must be faith. Curiosity. Curiosity. God wants us to know him. And finally, gratitude. So what ought we to do after we spend time with God? Thank God that he let us spend time with him. That he cared enough to let us spend time with him. And, and by the way, gratitude and humility are cyclical. If you're humble, you'll be, th- you'll be thankful. If you're thankful, you'll be humble. And so sometimes, let me make this real practical and we'll close in prayer. Sometimes when we gather to worship, Dr. Mike and Dustin and I were talking about this today. Sometimes when we gather to worship and we, we think about worship only internally or only about ourselves, what happens is we forget why we're here. We're not here for us. We're here for him. We're here because God's giving us the invitation to meet with him and the invitation to meet with him together with other people. It's a pretty glorious privilege. And we ought to be thankful for that because it's about him, not about, not about us. It's... It, it, um, just to get just to get real, well, I won't go there. I won't go there. It, I'd be meddling, and we're over time. <laughs> Humility and thankfulness and gratitude. So we'll come back next week, and our topic will be uh, God's names and self disclosure. I mean, what has God said about Himself? How has God introduced Himself to us? What has he said about himself so that we can know him? And there is, there, is, there is stuff there. We could spend weeks just on that, but we'll spend a week on that and then we'll move on into topics like transcendence and eminence, trinity, uh, God's attributes. Um, and I, I hope you'll join with us at least through the end of May, the first part of June as we work through those details. Let me close in a word of prayer and then thank you for being here. Father, we praise you that and the questions that so many of us across our world have asked for so many years, more than, more than a thousand years, 2,000 years in some cases, with these philosophical questions, they're very real. I mean, we want to know where we came from and why we're here and why we exist. And so many of the answers that have been offered by religious systems, worldviews, and ideologies have fallen staggeringly short of not only our experience, but of what gives us hope Yet, Heavenly Father, you sent your son Jesus in human flesh and you spoke a book into existence through 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And the answers that we have human, or the questions we have humans have asked and the answers we've longed for, you have provided in a book that lets us know you and know your son Jesus. Father, that should stagger us. That should encourage us. That should motivate us to worship and praise and pray. Lord, it should bring us to a place of faith and curiosity and gratitude and humility. And I pray that it would. I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we gather on Sunday to celebrate you and to reflect on uh, Mother's Day. Think about the mothers that have impacted our spiritual lives. Lord, we pray that 
we would walk out of here having worshiped and being encouraged. I pray, Lord, for those that are struggling, not only in this place tonight, but those in our church family. Help them to know that you love them and care about them and help us to be the means by which they know you love them and care about them. Give us an opportunity to encourage someone as we leave in Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget, if you're interested in helping Miss Rosalie on Saturday with the Women on Mission Project, uh, see her as you're walking out the door. Have a great night. God bless. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.